there is a custom to, uh, you know, to read the Haggadah up before Shabbos Haggadah. So I thought we'd do a little, start with a little Haggadah. And we'll see if we have time, we'll say something on the parish Parashat Mitzorah. See, the Haggadah and Parashat Mitzorah, I think it's a, not a tough choice. Anyway, um, I'll say a few things about the Haggadah, of course, and everybody, there is a Haggadah here. If whoever wants a Haggadah, it's right here. Okay. Everybody has? Yeah. I'll say just a few words about the Haggadah, we'll see how. The Haggadah is part of Haggadah itself is the vehicle we use to in the narrow sense the vehicle we use to fulfill a commandment that we have once a year outside Israel twice a year the commandment is called Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim to tell the story of the Exodus Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim that term Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is actually found in the Haggadah and that may be its source the Rambam codified it that way. Mitzvah is saper. There's a mitzvah to tell the story of the Exodus on the night that we left Egypt. So there's a mitzvah to... The Rambam added, as it is written, the Rambam's source for the mitzvah to tell the story is Remember the day you left Egypt. Um, so the Rambam says, famous Rambam, the Rambam says, it's a mitzvah to tell Zohar to remember the story of the Exodus. It says, as it is written, Zohar at Yom HaShabbat Zohar to recall, remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Rambam compares the mitzvah of what he calls remembering, which he describes as telling the story. He compares that to the mitzvah of Zohar at Yom HaShabbat There's been reams written about what is the compar- famous Rambam. What is he comparing? You can't imagine. But the simple, plain meaning of the Rambam is obvious, I think. And that is the following. The Rambam is saying the following. The Torah says, remember the day. Remember the day you left Egypt. Zohar at Yom HaYom Mitzrayim. Remember the day that you left Egypt. So... Rambam says, as it is written, as it is written, Zohar at Yom HaShabbat What he means by that is this, Zohar at Yom remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is understood, the plain meaning of the text, which is in the Ten Commandments, is, as the Ramban says, remember always to, 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 to observe the Shabbat, and this memory, the Ramban said, extends beyond Shabbat itself. Remember things you, you remember it all the time. So the Ramban says, for example, during the week, you, the week, you should, you're remembering the Shabbat all week long. So on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, you're walking in the street, see a nice something nice for Shabbos, you buy it. Or you have to start on Sunday, you can wait till Wednesday. Okay, that's Mahokas for Shabbos But the concept that we're thinking of Shabbos all the time. That's the plain meaning, says the Ramban, of Zohar to remember the Sabbath. Remember how important it is, what it signifies, practically speaking, preparation, etc. But the rabbinic interpretation, the additional rabbinic interpretation of Zohar at Yom HaShabbat that becomes a source for a biblical commandment. And the commandment is called Kiddush. The mitzvah to recite Kiddush on Shabbat 
the source of that in the Gemara is the verse of which they appended to the verse Zoharet Yom HaShabbat Kadsho. so their understanding Zoharet Yom HaShabbat Kadsho, in this understanding doesn't mean to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy but rather Zohar from the Hebrew word to mention we Hazkir mention that the Sabbath day is holy and when do you mention that the Sabbath day is holy on the Sabbath day itself and that is the plain meaning of what the Rabbam says the Torah says remember the day you left Egypt so the Rambam says just like it says by that he means very simply that to remember not just talk but talk on the day itself because the fact of the matter is that we have in our in our you know in our larger rabbinic corpus two different commandments concerning the holiday of Passover in the Exodus one is what the Rambam calls sip, even though the Rambam sources to remember but the Rambam describes the mitzvah as telling the story Sipo Yitziat Mitzrayim we have in the Haggadah Mitzvah Leinu L'Sabir Yitziat Mitzrayim there is another mitzvah that's called remembering the Exodus Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim that is a mitzvah how, how often do we perform that mitzvah? every day every day once a day twice a day whether it's either once or twice a day it's a disagreement in the Mishnah as to whether it's once a day or twice a day there's one opinion that there's a mitzvah to remember the exodus once a day and there's another opinion there's a mitzvah to remember the exodus twice a day it's a Mishnah in tractate Brachot at the end of the first parak. does this Machok sound familiar to anybody? Why does this sound familiar? It should sound familiar. It's found in the Haggadah, actually. It's found in the Haggadah. Right? I'm Rabbi Waza ben Azari, Haran Ike ben Shivim Shana. In this Haggadah, it's on page. What is this? Is, which is Haggadah? Max, Maxwell House. In the Maxwell House Haggadah, on page 10. Page 10 in the Maxwell House, third paragraph from the top. Rabbi Waza ben Azari said, I am like a man of 70. I was not able, I was not able to prove that the exodus of Egypt should be mentioned at night until Benzoma came. And Benzoma said, the verse says, You should remember the day you left Egypt, all the days of your life. And Benzoma said, What do you mean all the days of your life? So means the day. And means even the night time. And the Chachamim disagreed. They said, that's not true. There's not a mitzvah to mention the Exodus twice a day. There's only a mention to mention the Exodus once a day. So what is call? Call be an inclusive term. What does that include? Mashiach means even after the Messiah comes and there'll be an ultimate redemption, we still will have the mitzvah to remember the Exodus. That's what you have in the Haggadah. So, of course, if you don't understand where this is coming from, you will arrive and you will say incredibly stupid things about this paragraph. Because, you, what do you mean once a day or twice a day? So, if it's a mitzvah to remember it twice a day, what, you have a Seder at night and a Seder in the daytime? Is that what they're saying? What do you mean twice a day? He, I, I was never able to convince anybody, as I was never to convince anybody that there's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus twice a day 
right? Day and night. Until Ben Zoma came along with his drusha. The rabbis disagreed. Just once. Not twice. But of course the point is obvious. This has nothing to do with Passover. Even though it's printed in the Haggadah. Zero to do with Pesach. It's not even from Tractate Pesachim. It's from Brachot. First chapter. It's part of, it's a, it's a chapter that deals with Shema, actually. The question in the Machokot is, the third paragraph of the Shema, which mentions the Exodus, do you mention that in the, at night or not? There's one opinion that you mention it in the night as well. Because you have to remember, because the third paragraph and the blessing that follows contain a mention of the Exodus. Ani Hashem Elokeichem, Asher Otseti Etchem Yaretz Mitzrayim, so you're mentioning the Exodus. With the Shema. So if you say the third paragraph of the Shema twice a day, you're saying twice, twice you're remembering the Exodus. And the blessing that follows, Gaal Yisrael, is a description of the Exodus. So that's the one opinion. And the other opinion is, no, just one time a day. And the call means, but you always have to do it, even, even when the Messiah comes. And the other fellow says, no, once the Messiah comes... So we have a different redemption, so we'll forget about Passover, and we'll just mention the ultimate redemption, and this is the opinion that holds, but it has nothing to do with Passover. It's a different mitzvah, actually. That's the mitzvah to remember every single day, twice a day. But on the night of Passover, there's a different mitzvah, and that is Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. So the question, of course, is, what is the difference between those two mitzvot? What's the difference between those two? Rabbi Soloveitchik he, he talked about the Seder many, many times, and he quoted his father or grandfather who had a list of differences between the night of Passover and every day. And obviously, there is a very significant difference between the two situations because every day, just remembering it, you're mentioning it. Get his own list. Let's leave that, leave that aside. But, but the point is, I would say two things about the difference between mentioning it and Zechira and Sipur. Which comes down to one main point. Zechira means you're simply mentioning it. We, God took us out of Egypt. That's every day, morning and night. That's our practice, morning and night. Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, Saper means to tell the story. And that involves much more than just mentioning it. First of all, mentioning it does not require anybody else to be in the room. You can mention it... You, remembering actually to remember something does not require another party you remember it yourself but Sipur to tell the story optimally requires an- another person who you're telling the story to it is true that if there's nobody else around you're by yourself on Pesach unfortunately and there's still a mitzvah to tell the story you tell yourself as it were okay but that's a situation where you can't do better but fundamentally the mitzvah of Sipur involves the other. That's number one. Number two, the mitzvah to remember is just to say, we, took, we left Egypt. God took us out of Egypt. But the mitzvah of Sipur, Yitziat Mitzrayim, is much more extensive. In fact, it takes the form, as we have it in our Haggadah, based on the Mishnah in Basachim, and we read a text, says the Mishnah, V'doresh kol ha we engage in the Midrash. So the only, time we, the only time during the year we are instructed by the Mishnah to do Midrash. The Doresh Kolapar Shakua. In fact, the Haggadah has many, many Midrashim. We'll get to that in a minute. 
So that's the second difference between them. One is much more extensive. Again, Rabbi Salvation talked about, he argued that maybe the name of his grandfather, remember, that it involves not just telling the story, but he wanted to argue that it involves additionally how else. In other words, it's not just telling the story, but it's being grateful for uh, the fact that we left Egypt. But I would say that the fundamental difference between them is that not just about quantitatively that you say a lot more, but I would say that actually it's a story. In other words, the point of the Haggadah is that actually we're telling a story. And I have argued in my Haggadah, for those who haven't seen it, I'll mention it, that the very text itself of the Haggadah, the core text of the Haggadah, which is a very strange choice that the Mishnah made for us. We didn't choose this ourselves. The Mishnah chose it for us, actually. The core text of the Seder are the verses from the book of Devarim, the pilgrim who brings the first fruits. And when you bring the first fruits to the temple, you make a statement. It's called Arami Oveda It's the statement of the pilgrim who brings the first fruits to the temple, which is the core text of the Seder, and the Mishnah says you read that text, the whole parsha, and Vidoresh Kola Parsha Kula, you engage in Midrashim on the parsha. That's what the Mishnah says. So that's a, to put it mildly, a very peculiar text to be chosen for the Seder on several re- for several reasons. One of them is why would we choose a text from the Book of Devarim when we're, we are focusing on the Exodus? You would imagine that the text of the Seder would be from the book of Exodus, not from the book of Deuteronomy. That's number one. Number two, the particular text they choose is a statement made when you bring the first fruits to the temple. First fruits is not a Passover uh, connected event, but the Torah explicitly has Yom Abikurim, which is Shavuot, so it's a Shavuot ritual. Why in the world, given the wealth of information about the Exodus, in the first half of the book of Exodus, no less, why would you choose a text that, number one, is not from the book of Exodus, but secondly, it's a very peculiar ritual. It's not identified with Passover at all. It's identified with the holiday that appears seven weeks after Passover. So why in the world would this be the choice? So I would say just to begin, two things about the choice, which are very important. Actually, I'd say more than two things. Rabbi Salavajic emphasized the following, which doesn't explain, explains one thing, but not another. He emphasized that the choice of, these, of this section, our practice is to recite four verses. We don't say the whole parsha. Parsha is a few more verses. We say four verses. That's interesting in its own right. Four verses. So he said that actually, if they had told us to read the book of Exodus, we could read a few chapters of the book of Exodus and we get the story. But then we would be, that's the lazy person's way to do it, because you wouldn't really have to work very hard to study the story, you're just reading the story. But the idea of doing four, text, four verses and engage in Midrash, so the idea of engaging in Midrash forces you to actually study it. So in the midst of the night, he argued, is not to tell the story, but to study the story. That's, that's what he said. What it doesn't actually explain is the choice of this particular text, except the fact that it's short. 
but it doesn't actually explain in this, this particular text. So, I would say several things about the text. One is that the particular text is not just short, but actually it's a kind of story. The person who comes to the temple with the first fruits tells a story. Starts actually in the first person. My father was a wandering Aramean. But what's interesting about the story is that he tells, he's not just telling a story. But in the Chumash, when you bring the first fruits to the temple, you actually are bringing, the Torah describes the ritual of bringing the first fruits. For example, you take the first fruits and you put them in a basket. And the, you take the basket up and then you place the basket next to the altar. It's not actually clear in the story whether you place the basket next to the altar or the priest places the basket next to the altar. But there's something to do with not just talking, but the talking is accompanied by some kind of, some kind of ritual. The ritual of bringing, number one. Number two, there's something else, that's one of the points I emphasize in my little Haggadah, which I like very much, this particular point. I like that God in general too, but this particular point I like a lot. Which is that the, the bringing of the first fruits is not just an offering you give the priest. This is actually a very important point about Bikurim. The Bikurim are not just an offering you give the priest, but the Bikurim are a kind of sacrifice. Proof is obvious when you read it that the Torah emphasizes twice that you place the first fruits in front of the altar. His name is Bach. You place it before the Mizbeach. So as such, and this is one of the key points, as such, you have the conjunction of two different things. You have on one hand a sacrifice, and on the other hand you have a statement which accompanies the sacrifice. And the reason the rabbis love this particular text for Pesach is very simple. Because we ask ourselves the question, what is the Seder actually about? What is Haggadah about? So it's like this. When you open up the Chumash, and you read about the holiday we call Passover, in the Chumash, by the way, Passover is not the 15th day of the month. Passover is the 14th day of the month. Chag Pesach in the Chumash is the day you bring the sacrifice. What we call Passover the Torah calls Chag HaMatzot, which is the next day, seven-day holiday starting on the next day. When you read the Chumash, the Chumash emphasizes one thing about Pesach, which is the sacrifice. You bring the sacrifice in the daytime, and you eat the sacrifice at night, together with Matzah, together with Maror. That's what the Torah talks about. The rabbinic tradition, though, read something else into this ritual which is not explicitly in the Torah at all, but they read it in. <coughs> what they read in was that in conjunction with the, with the sacrifice, the Passover meal is a sacrificial meal. That's what, that's what it is. Okay, today we don't have a sacrifice, so we have the Afikoman instead of the sacrifice. But fundamentally, at its core, it's a sacrificial meal. The rabbis read into the text, or read into our practice, something else. 
that in conjunction with the sacrificial meal, we ought to ask questions and to try to respond. That is to say, we are engaged in some kind of study. They put it in terms of children and, 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 and intergenerational learning. The Haggadah includes this idea of the four different children asking or not asking different kinds of questions. In the Chumash, there is zero evidence that the question, I would say zero evidence, but of the four verses that I've got a size to describe questions that children are asking, only one of them sounds like the question is actually on Pesach. The other questions, not only not on Pesach, but the main one is not, it has nothing to do with Pesach at all. The main question is ascribed to the wise child, which is more Eidot HaChukim V'Yamishpatim, has zero to do with Pesach, Pelechia Pesach. He's at, this child is asking, why do we do all of these different rituals? Well, what, we have a religion with a million rituals. What's the point of all these rituals? That's a verse from Sefer Dvarim. The answer to that question, what is the answer to the question? What are all the remembrances, the rules, the regulation, right? Statues. What's that question in the Chumash? Let's find that question. Nagada is a deceptively simple book. And the more you get into it, the more you realize we don't understand anything. Okay, that's, it usually works that way. Where's that question? That's, in this, where is that? Let's see, it's in the same. Where is it? Let's see, hold on a second. This is, I believe it's in, it's the end, one second. Oh, where is this? Hold on. I'm not finding this over here. Where is this verse? Here, here it is. Here, I got it. Page 390. The book of Devarim, chapter 6. Chapter 6. Everybody sees it? Top of the page. 390. Your child will one day ask you, Machar, in the future. Moses talks in the book of Zohar before they enter the land. Sometime in the future, means after you're in the land, your child will ask you, What are these statutes, ordinances, decrees, rules, whatever, which God has commanded you? What, what is this all about? It has nothing to do with Passover. He's asking the question, who knows, the middle of the winter, middle of the summer, it doesn't say any time, machar, at some future point. You should say the following to your child. We were slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt. This is a very, very uh, instructive set of verses for the Haggadah. We were slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt. And God took us out of Egypt with a strong hand. And God did great wonders and miracles and terrible things to the Egyptians before our very eyes. And God took us out of there in order to give us the land that God promised to our ancestors. 
And God commanded us to do all these rules. To observe all these laws, to revere God, for our lasting good, for our survival, as is now the case, they translate. It will be therefore to our merit, counted for us as righteousness, as God has faithfully to do what God has faithfully commanded us. So what actually is the answer? What is the question and what is the answer? It's a very good question. First of all, the question is you have nothing to do with Passover. Someone, someone is going to ask you, you have a million rituals, what is this all about? Answer. What is the answer? God took us out of Egypt. God brought us to the land, right? God commanded to do all these things that it be good for us, right? To keep us alive, even, 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 even as we speak. And this will be accounted merit for us if we continue to observe the mitzvah. So what actually is the answer? It's a very good question. The Haggadah has these verses. By the way, in the Haggadah, we have both the first verse, in the bright of the four children, that's ascribed to the wise child. We have in the beginning of the Seder as some kind of response to what? What's Avadim Hayinu a response to in the Seder? The Madishtana. There's also questions. Madishtana, I was there, Avadim Hayinu And we also have the third verse. Right? We have the verse, not the third. We have the fourth verse. We have that verse also. Now, where is that verse in the Haggadah? Verse number 23. That's found that's later in the Haggadah. That's, let's find this verse. Where is this? It's later in the Haggadah on page 24 in the Maxwell House Haggadah. Right? The Chodar Vadar in every generation. One must see oneself as if personally uh, left, uh, left, left Egypt. As it is written, etc. God did not only redeem our ancestors, but it redeemed us also. As it is written, God took us out of there. Right? So the three of these verses are found in the Haggadah, in three different places, actually. It's a very core text of the Haggadah. But what's not there is the end, which actually, if you think about it, is probably the Pshat and the Chumash. The, the question is not about the Exodus at all. The question is, Exodus happened a thousand years ago. Someone says, what are we all, the million rituals? Well, what is this all about? All these rules and regulations. To which the answer seems to be, these are God's rules and regulations, and we follow God's commands, because without God, we wouldn't be here in the first place. It's, it, God is the one who brought us into the land, and it, it's accounted for us righteousness if we are fulfilling these, 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 these commandments. What it sounds like, to me anyway, is that the point is that these commandments, which reflect the will of God, are what enables us to actually stay in the land. 
Because we wouldn't be in this land without God's assistance. And therefore, we must fulfill the commandments to stay in the land. Which touches on something that I spoke about before Purim, which is that the plain meaning of the book of Devarim is that the rules and regulations of Sefer Devarim are a way to live in the land. I spoke about that before Purim, and I made the point that if one would hypothetically imagine that the land disappeared from your picture, that, there is, that you're not living in the land of Israel, nor will you ever live there in the foreseeable future. You're living in the land, not in the land of Israel, where God speaks, but you're living in a place where God never speaks. And the king is not God. The king is named Ahasuerosh. He runs the world. If that were the case, in fact, then presumably, logically, two of the key pieces of our calendar wouldn't really exist. One is remembering the Exodus, if you're still in Egypt, why would you remember the Exodus? And B, that the Torah that you need to live in exile, presumably, is a different Torah than the one you need to live in the land. That's just obvious. And that I, that I further argued that the Mishnah, Mesechet Megillah, is very worried or responds to the possibility that one could read the Megillah exactly that way. That the, the books that are written at the end of the Megillah to describe how Jews should live in exile, in which the month of Adar becomes the central month as opposed to Nisan, is precisely that. It's a Torah written for, for exile, which is not identical to the Torah written for the land. So the Mishnah doesn't like that. And the Mishnah goes against that and tries to put Purim in a larger context. And Pesach is still the main Jewish holiday. That's the Mishnah. I do believe that the shot of the Megillah is exactly what the Mishnah is afraid of. And the, Mishnah is, and the Megillah is saying that. That's another story. But here, the point is simple. Ma'edos v'achukim v'amishpatim has nothing to do with Passover. It's a general question. The Haggadah, you see, the Haggadah is interpreting the question... In effect, in other words, I would say this, that God is claiming, the claim of the Seder is that if you understand Pesach, you understand the whole Torah. Because that Mo'edos v'achukim v'amishpatim for the Seder becomes equal to Manishtana. Avadim Ayinu in the Chumash is the beginning of the answer to what are all these rules and regulations. At the Seder, Avadim Ayinu is the answer to the question, Manishtana, Halaylo Hazem and here I want to make another point about the Seder that's very important, which is that the Seder in general, Haggadah in general, does not actually focus on what happens later. The Haggadah is always focusing on the moment of the Exodus. So, for example, over here, there's a question and an answer. The answer may be six verses. The Haggadah stops short. The Haggadah doesn't deal with what the future that God is focused on, if one might say fixated on, the moment that you leave. So my point is, in the Chumash, the question, the answer in the Chumash is, and the continuation. Now what is the answer in the, in the Haggadah? The Haggadah gave a totally different answer. The Chumash gives you an answer. The Haggadah gives the strangest answer. You should tell to your child, whatever that means, the laws of the Passover. In Maftir in Pesach, Afikoman. 
that you're not allowed to eat dessert after you eat the last piece of the matzah we call the afrikoman. So first of all, what the heck is that answer? But apart from that, let me ask a different question. Why does the Haggadah supply you an answer? The Torah supplied a perfectly fine answer, and now we did it supply a fine answer. The very verse it starts with is the beginning of the Haggadah. It's not a verse that we're not familiar with. Avadim Oyinu, Mitzrayim, is how we start the Seder. I'm making a simple point. I want to get into this right now. I'm making a simple point. Haggadah is a very simple book. That doesn't mean it's simple. It's very simple on the surface. When you begin to think about it, it's, it's actually very unbelievably complicated. Why in the world would the Haggadah choose, give an answer, which is not a, a verse, but when the Chumash gives you an answer, why go, why go well? What, what is that actually about? So what it sounds like, it's large, part of this larger project. The claim is, if you understand, understand Pesach, you understand the Torah. Now that's the claim of that. It's, under, it's underlining the core point about the Seder. The Seder is the core Jewish ritual. If you want to understand Judaism, you start with the Seder. What do you want to say, Suri? No, just what you were saying before about the Well, which, 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 which verse are you reading? 389 verses 10 through 15, basically. Right before the Kishal Chakim Yeah, I think it's, I, I would say it's true, basically. Well, look at verse 18, it's even more striking. Mm-hmm. 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 You can't be more explicit about it. It's for your sita hatov in order to inherit Eretz Tova. So it's clear. Right. right. God took you out of Egypt. The Chumash is explicit in any place. It's what God said to Moses in the very beginning. I'm taking you out of Egypt to bring you to a land of milk and honey. It's clear in the Chumash that the reason you leave Egypt to possess the lands, and that the mitzvot on the way there, like Mount Sinai, and the attendant covenants, are a way to live in the lands. Remember, the living in the lands, you're living in a place where God talks to you. That is to say, where God is present. And the point of the Chumash, the Ramban, was emphasized this in his commentary a hundred times, that when you live in the land, the sins are magnified. Because you're sinning in God's presence. The, the opportunities are great because you can actually have a dialogue with God and God speaks in the land. But when you, go, when you leave the land, you are, as it were, leaving God's presence. The Ramban even goes so far in one place to claim, famous Ramban, in chapter 18 of Vayikra, that he quotes a Medrash that the mitzvot you observe outside the land are just to remind you to keep them when you get to the land. Make for yourself signs. But the Torah basically says the Ramban was given to live in the land. Okay, you can't always be in the land. You got to keep in shape. You got to, you know what I mean? But they're warm-ups, basically. That's the Ramban. Now, the Ramban, we shouldn't take it too literally. The Ramban was a highly observant Jew, obviously. At the end of his life, he did leave when he went to Israel. The end of his life. Ramban's amazing in a hundred ways. The fact of the matter is, 
That is the plain reading of the Torah, basically. And that's the Megillah. Megillah says, if you're not going to get out, so Chodesh Nisan has no real significance. You might want to observe it. Tradition, you know, tradition is nice, is a good thing. But fundamentally in the Megillah, the month of Adar is the month. It's not the month of Nisan. And the Torah that's being taught us by Mordechai and Esther at the end is very similar to the Torah we found elsewhere, but there's a different focus. You're living in a place where God never talks. Human responsibility is even greater because God isn't speaking, etc., etc. Pesach is our core ritual. Pesach takes us back to the basics, which is, the fact of the matter is, the Exodus as a precursor to possessing the land, but in the Haggadah itself, there's virtually nothing, no mention made whatsoever about possessing the land. Almost not mentioned at all. The focus is the moment, that instant where you're leaving. Now, the claim, I'll come back to the main point I want to make about Arami Oveda V in a second. The claim that I made in the Haggadah, my Haggadah commentary, is that the reason for the focus on, or the focus on the moment you are leaving is for the following reason. The Haggadah makes the claim, additional claim, that in every generation we should see ourselves as leaving Egypt. So the Haggadah wrestles with a problem of student of, 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 uh, of history. It's like, it's like you go to the movies, you see a movie. And then you like it a lot, you go back and see it again. But you can't actually see it the same way the second time, for the very simple reason you actually know the ends. You know how the story progresses. That's the problem we have in history. We know the end. We know what happens. So therefore, it's very easy to read everything that happened in, in light of our knowledge in the present. But just imagine you don't know the end. Imagine you don't know the end. Imagine, try to put yourself in that place of where people were, let's say when they left Mitzrayim. Okay, their promise is the land, you've got to walk through a desert, there's no food there, there's no water. It's not so simple. Do you leave, don't you leave, etc. So, it's always easy in retrospect to say, oh, wonderful thing. But the fact of the matter is, you've got to put yourself in that place. So in order to put yourself in that place, that God helps us out, we don't focus on what happens in the future. We are focused on that particular moment when we leave Egypt. That's what the Haggadah actually does. It allows us to look at the moment when we left Egypt and to consider that moment, which is a very perilous and frightening journey into the unknown. That's where you want... Anyway, that's the focus of that Seder. The core texts of the Haggadah don't mention the future. There are texts that mention beyond the Exodus, but basically they are secondary texts, like Dayenu. Dayenu is not really a core piece of the Seder. It's a song which was put into the Haggadah. It's very old, but it's not a core piece of the Seder. If you illuminate Dayenu, you don't really change much for the Seder. It's not, it's not, it's not a central text of the Seder. The central text is the, is the, the prayer of the pilgrim, Aramio Vedavi. Another central text is the text that describes the covenant made with Avraham about the land. Another central text is Rabbi Gamliel's statement that we are describing the mitzvot of the night, Pesach, Matzah, Umbarah. Those are the core texts of the Seder. And, and also the Manishtada. 
Those are the texts of the Seder. The other stuff, Rabbi Yosef, the, the, the Megrish about how many plagues took place at the sea, and Dayenu, those are secondary texts. Probably later editions. They're secondary texts. They're not significant, actually, from the standpoint of the core idea of the Seder. They're relatively insignificant. That's not what the Seder is actually about. And those texts always stop short. God made Abraham a promise about the land. The land is not mentioned. All that said is they will leave with great, with great wealth. They'll leave Egypt. Because the focus is always leaving Egypt. So coming back, and that's also our custom. That's our custom on the, on the Arami Ovedovi text. We read four verses at the Seder. But if you read further in the Chumash, you will see the more verses. The fifth one being, you brought us to this place. We don't mention the place. We're not, we're not focusing on coming, returning to the land. We are focused on leaving Egypt. The person who's speaking is in the land. That's a very important point. And that's maybe another reason for that text. The person who talks, the, the pilgrim who's talking, is, in, is standing inside the temple and reflecting back on the, the past. The person in the text of the pilgrim's prayer, chapter 26, was never in Egypt. Was never there, standing in the temple. Maybe he's there, maybe living in Israel for 500 years. Sometime in the future, when you come into the, you possess the land, Yerishtobi, Yashapta, there for hundreds of years. So the Haggadah, the core text of the Seder, is a text which, which relates to the person that was never there, actually. It's another reason they chose it, because that's us. The, the Haggadah is, is directed to the Jew who was not there. It makes the claim, even though we were never there, we have to see ourselves as being there. That's the claim. V'chodar v'adar, chayav adam l'rotet atzmo, kiu hu yatsami mitzrayim. The question is, what does that mean? So the Svardim have a custom to walk around the table. Yeah. What does it actually mean? We were there, we weren't there. So what does it mean we see ourselves as being there? What, what, what is it actually trying to say? <coughs> I don't think it means we actually see ourselves as being there and walking out in that sense, but I think it does mean, it does mean trying to put ourselves in, in the head, trying to understand the people that were in Egypt, but I think it also means connecting to that event. In other words, we're seeing where we are today as a function of those people that left Egypt. I would add to this something else which is actually very important for the Haggadah, very true in the Haggadah, which is, it's a very strange, the core ritual of the Jewish people, this is obviously the main ritual of the Jewish people, celebrates the fact that we left Egypt. Not just at the Seder, but as I said in the beginning, we have a mitzvah to remember the Exodus twice every single day. Not only that, we make Kiddush on Shabbos, Zechu Yitziat Mitzrayim, it's in the Ten Commandments, and all the festivals. We're always remembering Mitzrayim. If you think about it, I mean, one might have constructed our religion slightly differently. I would have said maybe we should celebrate the entrance into the land. Maybe we should celebrate the Torah, who knows, as the core event. Maybe we should celebrate entering the land. We celebrate the fact that 600,000 Jews left Egypt maybe two million Jews left Egypt. And almost every single one of them drops dead after wandering about the desert for 40 years. What exactly are we celebrating? What's the celebration? They're a bunch of losers and lemons. So I was celebrating? 
What's the answer? We don't see it that way. They're not losers. They're great. Okay, they couldn't take the, they couldn't take the last step. But they took the first step, which is the most important step. They left. And we see ourselves as not just continuing their path, we see our fate is bound up with them. In other words, the Haggadah is a very simple point. The Haggadah makes the claim that each generation has to see itself as both continuing the traditions of the past, but also building on the traditions of the past. And the fact of the matter is that that way of, of, of reading the past, which I would say is a, I would call it a generous way of reading, we're seeing, we're, we're viewing them in a very generous way. Um, that, that's actually in the Torah itself, even before you get to the Seder. The Torah makes that point. Because the Torah makes the claim that when God makes a covenant with, about the land, God said to Abraham, the fourth generation shall return to the land. That presumes that the first three generations will not return to the land. The first three generations will suffer, says God. They'll be strangers, they'll be oppressed, they'll be enslaved. The fourth generation shall return to the land. The covenant consists of the combination of the two generations. The sufferers and the, those who possess, the two are actually, each one alone is insufficient. For the full covenant to be realized, it's the covenant of those who possess and the covenant of those who suffer. It's the connectedness of the generations which is covenantal. So that God has simply picked up on what the Chumash says. On this night, we celebrate the beginning of the covenantal process. We are well aware of the fact that they don't actually succeed in taking the next step. That is, for our purposes, immaterial. And we actually see ourselves as continuing what they began. Wherever we find ourselves, whether we're in exile or whether in the land, we see ourselves as part of that process. It's the linkage that the ultimate crime of the Seder would be to disassociate from the past. That's what we don't like about the child who says, what are you wasting your time for? If you had been there, you wouldn't have been saved. It means, he's, this child is saying, I don't see myself as part of this process. Because I think the process makes no sense. So we, we, there's a twofold answer in the Haggadah. The first answer is the normal instincts to say, it makes no sense, so who needs you? That's the first answer. But then we reflect upon this a little more and we say, okay, the fact that somebody says something and you don't like the way they say it, or you don't like the person, doesn't mean that he's wrong. We'll start with that. And a lot of real jerks said very important things, you know? <laughs> and actually, very often it's that way. Because the goody-goody-goody keeps her mouth shut. It doesn't open up her mouth, as she's trained to do through her life. It doesn't say anything lest you offend somebody. And the not goody-goody says, I don't care about offending anybody. I'll just say what I think. Okay, we don't, maybe we don't like such people so much. But what they say very often is actually correct. And the question, it's not even a question, it's a statement. You're wasting your time. That's a very important point. Because, okay, we don't like the guy. Nonetheless, we have to address the question. Which is, how come we're not wasting our time? What are you turning your house upside down and pace up for? Because 3,000 years ago, supposedly you were saved from Egypt. What? Well, that's great. This is 2016. So how, what, what's, what's the Kesha, as we say? I'm not Kesha. Well, what's, the, what's the connection? So the Haggadah tries to answer that question. What is the relevance of this whole business? 
That's the core question of the Seder. I'll come back to that in a minute. Yes? But I just keep thinking of the Sarsen Zibro. When Hashem Shana Hashem Elokech Hashem Rafesiakov, there's the shrine. Maybe he introduced himself as the God that took us out of Egypt. Right. And because he made us the nation, that's why we have to remember that that's why we're here. Gachlav. That may be true. Okay. That's, that's, that's your answer to the question, which is the answer in the Chumash, actually. Which is, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be where we are if not for the fact that God took us out of Egypt. Our history begins with That is a very good answer. It's one that I think that God suggests. That that's the beginning of the process. I think it's, I wanted to add to that something else, additional. But I think your point is, is well taken. This is the beginning of our history. That's no, no question about it. Abu Ghada took you out of Egypt. It means something additional, which is, and you have experienced this. The God, the God that addresses Israel at Sinai is not the God who addresses Moses at the burning bush. Though it's the same place, actually. At the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's almost like we owe him. But that's, it's all, it's, yeah, oh, I mean, it's also, you've experienced it. Yeah, I'm your God, in other words. Exactly, your God, exactly. As opposed to just being the God, in other words, there are different reasons to stay within a tradition. One is, why do you do so, so and so? And for most of the world, the answer is, because that's what my grandfather did, or my grandmother, which is a totally valid, that's how traditional societies work. It's not because it says there's some text someplace or other. No. That's not what it is for most of the world. That's a, that's a, that's a recent invention. But you could even say, it's not even, God doesn't introduce himself as the God that made the world. It's not Rashid Bar-Rahalo, he specifically says, the Jewish God that took us out of Egypt could have said, and that's why we should, we should worship him. But it doesn't. It says right. specifically for us. Well, that's right, because you experienced it. It also doesn't say, I'm the God of your ancestors. Mm-hmm. which is why most people are traditional. Mm-hmm. They're traditional because they funk, work, work in a tradition. Why do you do this? Because that's what my grandmother did, or my great-grandfather, or my Rebbe, or my whatever it is. That's how I function. But in the Exodus, it's, I took you out, I took you out of Egypt. So it's not just about the past. You have a personal experience. That's, that's also part of it. But there's something else which is actually important. And I want to get back to this other point about this Arami Ovedovi. Which is this, is, this is key to the Seder. This is the absolutely key point of the Seder. What the Seder is interested in is not the history. It's not about the history of leaving Egypt, of which the Seder doesn't really care very much about the history of it. The Chumash cares even less about the history of it. What the Seder is claiming is that this event of leaving Egypt is the fulfillment of a prior promise. That, that's the claim of the Seder. Not just a prior promise made to Abraham, but a covenantal promise. That God said to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers and enslaved and abused for many years. The fourth generation returns to the land. On that day, God made a covenant with Abraham. That's the words of the Torah in chapter 15, which now God cites. It doesn't cite the whole thing. It always cites the beginning up to you will leave with a lot of wealth. It doesn't cite returning to the land. But the claim is of the Haggadah, the core claim of the Haggadah, is that the, is that the event of leaving Egypt is a fulfillment 
of the promise made to Abraham. And in fact, another reason that we have chosen this little section of called Arami Oveda V, apart from the next thing I want to get to, but the, the, one of the reasons is obvious. When you read Arami Oveda V, the four verses, so what is it? Arami Oveda, first verse. Arami Oveda V, Vayered Mitzrayma, Vayagar Sham Bimtei Ma'at. Vayisham Ugoi Gadol Ratsum Vara, verse number one. Verse number two. The first two verses of the Arami Ovedavi section contain three words. The first is Vayagar, which is a ger. Second verse, Vayanunu, which is Inui. And then Avodakasha, Avdut. Gerud, Inui, and Avdut, which are exactly the three covenantal terms. So the Arami Ovedavi itself, the first two verses, contain the covenantal formula of Gerut, Avdut, and Inui in the Aramio of Edivitz, Gerut, Inui, and Avdut. But this is exactly the promise made to Abraham. So the answer to the question, why is this an important event that happened so many years ago, the answer is a simple one. Because this is the experience of the Exodus is a fulfillment of a covenantal promise. It's within this covenant that we actually function. We are functioning, our relationship to God is a covenantal one. What do you mean a covenantal one? A covenantal one means many things. It means, for starters, that it's a long-term relationship. We don't, long-term relationships are different than short-term relationships. Long-term relationship means you're in it for the long haul. You understand there'll be many ups and downs. There'll be many problems, because life is filled with problems. We're in this together for the long haul. That's number one. Number two, covenant means there's a certain sense of loyalty and commitment that you have to have. And when you break a covenant, typically it's that like, you know, you didn't show up one day for some minor thing. You're breaking a covenant, can in, in, people are emotionally invested in the covenant. So when you break a covenant, you are, you should expect that the other party will be very offended and very, perhaps very angry. The Chumash is replete with statements about God's great anger. Uh, that's the, that's the, on the other hand, there is a great reward to the covenant. There's a, there's a very, very close, it's a very deep relationship. So this is how we live. This, the answer is, why do you, it's not about the history of, you know, several years ago, some rabbi on the West Coast made a statement that we can't prove that the Exodus ever took place. There's a big uproar. Here's my response. Who cares if it took place? It's absolutely irrelevant. Sir. Would my, my life would be offended one whit if it didn't take place? No. And that's true for the whole Chumash in general. But Chumash is not history. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It might have happened. Who cares? The Chumash couldn't care less about that. It's not about history. It's actually about what we call myth, which is it's the guiding principles of our life. That's the point. That is the answer. It took place 3,000 years ago. I don't care if it takes place 30,000 years ago. It's not about that. It's about how we live our lives, how we see ourselves in relationship to God. And we see ourselves as covenantally bound. And the covenant means you're bound. It's not just you do your thing, I do my thing. That's not what covenants are. Covenants demand reciprocal obligation and reciprocal practice, behavior. They demand it. If they don't demand it, it's not a covenant. So therefore, that's the deep answer. And that God has set out, that's why you start with 
God's promise to Abraham in the Haggadah. Because what the Haggadah is interested in is interpreting this particular event in light of the promise made to Abraham. So that's another reason they chose the text of Arami Oveda V. Because in the little four verses, in the first two of them, you have Gerut, Inui, and Avgut. By the way, I'll add another point to Gerut, Inui, and Avgut, which is this. This could be all sheer in itself. I think it's in the Haggadah. I don't remember. So this, I don't remember what I wrote in the Haggadah anymore. But, but the fact is, here's what's interesting about the triple Gerut, Avgut, and Inui. Inui and Avgut. When God speaks to Abraham, God said it like this. So know very well. Abraham said to God, how do I know that I will possess it? Well, literally, through what shall I know that I possess the land? Through what? In other words, Abraham says, what is it going to cost me? What is the price of the covenant? Understanding every covenant has a price. If it had no price... If it was simply unilateral covenant, it wouldn't be worth very. If something is free, it's not worth much. It's not worth anything. If it's for nothing. If it's cost you something, that means it's worth something. That's all. So the order, what? You're invested. You're invested in it, exactly. That's what Freud said about therapy. Very important to pay a therapist, he said. Because that shows you're really committed to it. Even Freud couldn't imagine the prices they're charging nowadays. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. Anyway, so um, here, here's the point about the Gerut. In the Chumash, is Gerut, Abdut, and Inui. Now let's say in Egypt, what is the order in Egypt? It's interesting. In Egypt, what is the order in Egypt? Chapter 1. Gerut is last. Gerut is not mentioned in chapter 1. Gerud appears in chapter 2 with Moses, Gershom. Chapter 1, you don't have it. What's curious is Inui precedes Abdut. Why is that so? Understand the question? Let's start with the question. Forget the answer, okay? The question. question. People say the question is more important than the answer. That is nonsense. The question is not more important than the answer. That's still, obviously. We say utter nonsense. But... Without the question, you never get the answer. We care about the answer. But you, how do you get to the answer? You've got you to notice the problem. We notice something interesting about, about Egypt. The Torah switched the order. Inui, right? It's what it says, right? A new pharaoh emerges in Egypt who didn't know Israel, didn't know Joseph. It says Israel, was, they're too numerous, right? Hover the Takmalo, we have to outsmart them. Right? He placed over them taskmasters to oppress them, to abuse them. Next verse. As he would have oppressed them. They would multiply. Next verse. The Egyptians enslaved. Five times the word enslaved. So there, the Torah has Inui and Abdut. Gerud is later, chapter 2. There's no Gerud in chapter 1, which is interesting, but also interesting is the switch from Inui to Abdut. Why is that the case, actually? Good question. Why did the Torah notice that in, in the Arami Ovedo V section, Inui preceded Abdut? Second verse. It's exactly the order of, right? 
the Inui and Avdud are the same order as the Chumash in, in Shemot. Gerut is the order of the promise to Abraham, but not the order in the Chumash. In the Chumash, Ger does not appear in chapter 1 of Exodus. Ger only appears in chapter 2. So, let me just respond to these two points about the order. Yep. With Yaakov, it's Abdul Ninui. That's correct. Okay, I'm not going to go there, but your Suri's point is, it's also with Nahagad, the Suri's point is that the experience of Gerud, Abdul and Inui, appears in, in addition to the Exodus, it appears in chapters 31 and 32 of Genesis. It's Jacob's own statement about his sojourn in the house of Lavan. Jacob's own description of it. Abdut, followed by Inui in chapter 31, and then in chapter 32, in Lavan Garti, Gerus. So you have, the, what's interesting is, in the case of Jacob, you have Gerus later, same as, same as yeah, Gerus is later, but in the case of Jacob, the Abdut and the Inui follow the pattern of they follow the pattern of uh, of the covenantal promise to Abraham, but in Exodus it's the reverse. So this, this re- let me just get to the second point first, which is a simple one: Gerut being last. That 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 one's easy. The other one requires, I think, a lot of deep thought. I don't think I myself understand it properly yet. Well, we get first to the second point about gay being, gay root being later. Now, that one is easy to understand because it's the following. In the promise to Abraham, or that God lays out the covenantal responsibilities, there, Ger is first. The reason Ger is first, no, no Abraham, your descendants will be strangers. They'll be, in, they'll be enslaved and oppressed for many years. There, what it probably means is they'll be strangers in a, in a land that's not theirs, and therefore, being a stranger leads one to, in other words, Ger leads you to Abdutaninui. Because if you're a marginal, Ger means you're a marginal person. Marginal people are people that are obviously vulnerable, because they're not really part of the society. So they stand on the on the on the on the margins, and then they're, they're, since they have no one to support them, they're essentially marginalized. They're easy prey for anybody who wants to attack them for whatever reason, to blame them for their problems or to exploit them, any number of reasons. So that's why God starts with Ger first, and then later you have Abdut and Inui. But in the experience of it which is Jacob in the house of Lavan. After he leaves, he says, I was a Ger. Or Moses in chapter 2 of Exodus, who runs away from Egypt, and he names his son Gershom, for he said, I was a stranger in a strange land, in a foreign land. That's different. Because there the Torah is picking up something else, which is, Ger is not for the Chumash an objective reality. In other words, to be a slave or to be abused, okay? Someone is beating you up, okay? So pretty much if someone beats me, hits me with a pipe or something, I understand I've been hit with a pipe. Someone beats me, someone enslaves me, can't leave, I'm st- I, I, that I understand. 
But to be a ger, to be a stranger, that's different. To be a stranger, it's nothing to do only, it's not only with the objective reality. People can be in a very bad place, or people can be suffering, but they don't feel they're strangers. And the opposite is also true. You can feel, you can feel a dissonance. You can be in a room with a lot of people smiling at you, and you feel very alienated, and you feel it's not your place, you're someplace else. So the point is that to be a stranger in both of those stories, experientially, the person who says, I was a stranger in each of those two stories, has actually left. Jacob doesn't say, he's a, when Jacob talks to Laban, he says, you enslaved me, you abused me. But he doesn't use the word stranger yet until he leaves. He sends a message to his brother, tell my brother Esau, I was a stranger in Laban's house. Because he's left. When you leave something behind, then you have a distance. Then you can look at it and say, that was not my place. And the same thing is true of Moses in the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Moses, when he leaves Egypt, he runs away. He meets the daughters of the priest, Ruel, Yitro, whatever. He marries his daughter. He loves, he loves Yitro. He sees eye to eye with Yitro, justice and all that. Then he names his first child. Moses says... <coughs> That I was a stranger. So that, that's different. That's easy to understand, actually, and it's so true. And experientially, it's last. When you set up the covenant, it's first, because that's what allows the others to do this stuff to you. Mm-hmm. But what about the Inui and the Abdul? That's a very good question. In the case of Jacob, the Abdul is first. It follows the pattern. In the case of Pharaoh, it's interesting, it starts with Inui. It starts with the Inui. And the truth of the matter is that even God, the description of God, when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, chapter 3, and God begins to talk to Moses, right? Moses sees this burning bush. Moses is a very curious person. He comes forward to look at it. He has intellectual curiosity, does Moshe. And God says, take off your shoes, right? He's staying in a holy place. And God says, I'm the God of your father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God begins to speak to Moshe in the story of the snap. First words out of God's mouth, after the preliminaries. Let me introduce myself to you. Don't get too close. The God of your father. Then God, first words out of God's mouth. A what? I have certainly seen. What have I seen? Oni. The first words out of God's mouth, actually, it's interesting. The first thing God says, what God sees, is Oni. Inui. Inui is the first thing, actually. Oni Yami Hashem Mitzrayim. It's interesting, by the way, that that verse, Ra'o Ra'iti and Oni Yami Hashem Mitzrayim, let me just digress for two minutes, it actually resonates in a different verse. There's another verse, parallel verse. That verse, which is the, think about it, it's the first thing that God says, when God says to Moshe, well, God speaks. God hasn't spoken in hundreds of years, by the way. God speaks to Moshe for the first time in hundreds of years. The last time God speaks in the Chumash is when Jacob goes down to Egypt. From that point on, God doesn't talk. To be in Egypt is a place where God is not talking. And there is another story which plays off that very verse. Who said that verse? I don't guess even. It's the first 
and the only verse actually that's cited in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. Beginning of the book of Shmuel. Shmuel begins chapter 1 with the story there was a man named Elkanah and he was, used to travel periodically to Shiloh to bring his sacrifices and to bow down and he had two wives one was Penina and one is Chana. He loves Chana. But Penina has children, Chana has no children. Fine. And he loved her so much, he always would give, when he brought his sacrifices, he would always give Chana more. He loved her. And he also felt sorry for her. Fine. Every time, of course, he would give her these extra portions, the other wife would resent it and would attack her and make her life miserable. He seems to be oblivious to that. He does the same thing all the time. Anyway, this one time, she, her husband says to her, listen, forget about the children business. I love you more than ten children. You have me, whatever. So it doesn't seem to work. So she goes into the Shiloh. She walks into the temple. Awi, the priest, is standing there watching her. And she turns to God and she prays. There's one verse. There's only one verse of her prayer. What does she say? Who has it? What does it say? Chapter 1. Read Rosh Hashanah. What, what does it say? Yes, of course. Imra'ot tir'eh bo'ani amotecha. Right? V'sochartev o'tishkachet amotecha notatel amotecha zera anoshim unitativ Hashem ko yemei chayav umaro lo yarel roshel. That's the end of a prayer. If you remember, right? Imra'ot tir'eh. If you remember, ani amotecha. The, the suffering of, of, your, of, your, of your slave woman talks about herself. is exactly what God started in the story of the burning bush. The question is, why did the book of Shuel use that verse, actually? Clearly, it's the only verse Chana says. When you read the story of Shuel, what you see straight up is that the book is constantly in the first chapters referring back to Egypt. Eli the priest was chosen in Egypt, right? Uh, Samuel is another Moses who takes them out of Egypt. What Chana is saying, in effect, is the following. Here's what Chana says. I walk into your temple. That's what she says to God. I walk into your temple, which is Shiloh. The temple in the Torah was the purpose of leaving Egypt. In the book of Exodus, it ends with the Mishkan. I walk into your Mishkan, says Chana, which is the, which is the total disgrace. It's a place of, of, of terrible injustice, of violence. The priests are ripping everybody off. It's a horrible place. The fact that nobody else sees it, that's their problem. I see it very well. So let me tell you, God, she says, if you, if you, if you see my suffering and give me a child, if you do that for me, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give this child away. Right? I will give this child over to you, right? He won't be part of society. He'll be like a Nazir, right? This child that she gets, Samuel, is a second Moses. And what this child will do, essentially, is to recreate the world that, that you, in fact, want. And later she describes the world that God wants, a world where poor people, marginalized people, are taken care of. Now, the audacity of the speech is unbelievable. In other words... The world that you created with your Mishkan, that's not working very well, she says. You took him out of Egypt. Here's what we got in front of us. A Mishkan like Shiloh. Terrible place. I hate it, and so do you. So therefore, 
this time I'm going to handle it properly. You give me the child, and I'll take it. That's the story, of, that's how the book of Shmuel begins. It's actually a very important point for the book of Shmuel. But the prayer she references, of course, is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And by the way, this is such an important point for, say, for Shmuel, because God speaking to Moses at the burning bush, right, actually appears in the book of Samuel. Where's the story that's based on God speaking to Moses at the burning bush? It's almost verbatim. It's God speaking to Samuel in chapter 3. In those days, God wasn't speaking, right? That's how the chapter begins, right? In those days, God was like, the word of God was scarce, right? And the flame of God was almost extinguished. It's like, you can't even can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's. Ne'er Hashem the little candle was almost ex- extinguished. And Ewidim, and Ewi's eyes were dim, he could not see. The lights are going out, that's the point. Ewi can't see, can barely see. And the candle of God is flickering. And Samuel is sleeping next to the ark, it says, in the holiest place. Why? Because the ark is the place that God communicates from. But God is not communicating. So it's all fallen into great, it's like a, it's like a museum, you know what I mean? It's like a a relic. And suddenly God begins to speak. Samuel, Samuel. God calls Samuel. The whole story is about God speaking to Samuel. doesn't know anything from God. And that story about, and Samuel's reluctance to deliver the message, it's all based on the story of Moses at the burning bush. And the idea is, the deeper idea is, we are creating a new world. That's the message over there. That's the story of gets up in the morning, opens up the doors. It's not the world. The world of the priest is gone. The world of the priest is gone. The book of Samuel says the past is gone. Now the question is, what does the future hold? So initially Samuel takes over. Ultimately it's kingship that Samuel opposes. It's not a small point that the last chapter of Samuel, as we have it, is about David fighting the place of the temple. So the book actually... It's actually a very important point for Shmuel. The book begins with the destruction of the temple. It concludes with finding the place for, for, for God's permanent space, actually. But the point is, it all begins with what's being referenced in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel is God's speech to Moshe, You see there also that the Inui is the focus. Now the question is why? Yeah, but go, yes. Also, when, when uh, God calls out Shmuel, he responds to him. Yes, he does. It's all based on that, right? Hineniki Karatovi, right? <coughs> yes? Of course, it's based on that. It's exactly. The nursing is not just nursing, the nursing is inculcating with values. No, that, that Samuel was based on Moses is obvious. That, that's clear. The, the, you say, Moshe v'yaron b'cho'anav u'shmo b'korei shemo. Right? From the... Moshe v'yaron u'chabach, right? B'cho'anav. Right? Anyway, the point is, of course, that's already intertextual. That already in the text is there. But the idea that we're starting a new exodus, that, that basically what Chana says is we're starting over again. That's what Chana says. We are starting over again. Because what the past is not working. Your temple is not working. Your temple is corrupt. Your temple is, and God's going to destroy it. Next chapter, God destroys Shiloh. So God doesn't disagree. And there's something else, by the way, about God. God's not talking in that. 
In other words, the point, chapter 3 begins, in those days God's word was scarce, right? God is not talking. Why mean God's not talking? Because to be in Egypt means to be in a place where God doesn't speak. God doesn't talk in Egypt. God only talks in Egypt when God says to Moshe, we're getting out. But if you're in Egypt, God doesn't talk to you. So the same thing is true. We are conceptually, spiritually, in the beginning of Shmuel, in Egypt. And everything's gone south. Everything's gone south. And Hannah steps up and says, if you see, if you remember me, you don't forget me, then she says, I will, I will save the day. I will train the next leader. I will get us another, another Moses, Shmuel actually, and he will build a new world. He's not part of the establishment. He's the outsider. He's, uh, he's a Nazir actually. He's the ultimate outsider. That's what means, Moravo Yalel Rosho. The salvation can't come from within. The salvation comes from without. The Nazarite and, and then the woman who stands in the temple of all, all things. And the priest thinks she's drunk, doesn't understand, don't understand me what she's even talking about. Yeah, anyway. That she's initiating the conversation as opposed to the other two places where God is initiating right, the conversation. Right, she's, she's standing in for God. What she's saying is, this time, this time give it to me. It's a combination of Great humility, amatecha, right? She talks about, right? The word amatecha appears many times, right? I am your slave woman, the slave woman, but then she says, on the other hand, but, but leave it up to me. I'm going to, yeah, let me get, okay, sorry, what do you want to say? Uh, I know that you show that chapter one only comes before absolute, but you could argue that before God says, we're that's true. It does say that. No, no. In chapter one, no. In chapter one, Inui precedes it. In chapter end of chapter two, it is true that the cries ascend to God from the Avodah. That's true. You have it twice over there for a total of seven times, and that's what it says in the covenant. The Gamata Goya Sheyavodu Donanochi. I'm going to judge the ones I shall so the covenant is an emphasis on the slavery. Which also is present in the end of chapter 2. My point is when God first speaks to Moshe, God goes back to chapter 1. What is bothering God so much is the Inui. The Inui bothers God terribly. The Inui strikes me as two things. And i got to stop before I it. I didn't get to the main point I want to make about this, about the Arami of Okay, doesn't The Inui actually, Inui is often used as, as a sexual term. Not always, but most of the time. The other time we find Inui in the Torah, actually, it's very interesting, is about the Mon. In Sefer Devar, Vayancha Vayarivecha. God, God, Vayarivecha, God starved you, it says in Devarim, Deuteronomy. And God gave you the man. The Torah calls that God made you hungry. And most of is to deprive someone of something that's basic to, 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 to humanity. And the most, the most basic thing to humanity is actually food. Because you can't survive without it. You can survive without anything else. But you can't survive without food. So that's the ultimate inui is, the, is, is not having food. That's why the whole Sugi Gemara discusses man in one place. Long, long discussion of man 
in the last chapter of Tractate Yoma. It talks about fasting on Yom Kippur. The Inui means, Inui means depriving yourself of things you need to actually survive. That's the Inui. But it's the taking away of the, getting it to someone's basic life, the invasion of someone's person in the deepest way, that's the idea of Inui. It comes up in the beginning of Exodus, actually. It's interesting. It has a sexual meaning there, because what is Pharaoh worried about in the beginning of Exodus? What does he say? <laughs> too many of them. The Inui is actually intended to prevent population growth. That's right. The, exactly. The Inui is the... right. What God understands is that Pharaoh, from God's perspective, there's two things about the Inui. It's the invasion of someone's personal life in a deep way, but it's also something else. Because God has made covenant. The book of Exodus begins with covenantal promises. The covenantal promise, you see, has two different pieces to it. One is the price you pay. Gavrut, Abdut, and Inui. But we have to remember something else about the covenantal promise. God took Abraham out in chapter 15, and Abraham said to God, God said, don't worry, Abraham, I'll give you a great reward. What could you give me, says Abraham? I have no, I have no heir. I'm going to die, there's no one to succeed me. He took him outside. He says, number the stars. Can you count the stars? The point of the part of the covenantal promise to Abraham was not just the Gabriel and the Abdut and the Inui, but the promise repeated several times in Genesis, your descendants will be many. What Pharaoh's trying to do, you see, that's why it starts with the Inui. It starts with the Inui because the Inui directly contravenes the promise, the positive side of the promise, that can you, can you number the stars or what God said to Jacob, the promise of stars, the promise of the dust of the earth. So it starts with the Inui because the Inui is not just a more... <coughs> the Inui is intended... To, to defeat the covenantal promise. So that's the Torah begins. From God's perspective, that's more severe. Maybe for the other reason as well. The Inu is something very personal and very deep and very directly against a person's basic humanity. And that's what bothers God with the Inui. But the question is why in the initial promise, after this first, that with Jacob, that's another question, actually. Why there is Abdul proceeding Eno is a good question. But in general, it's a more natural could be so. Could, it could be that way. It could be that it's... And it could be that fundamentally... I will, we, know something, we can speculate about that. So I, said, I haven't got to the end of it, but... In any event, come, come back to the main point we had this morning, which is that the, the story of Egypt is a story about... The, 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 the promise made to Abraham, the, the suffering in Egypt is seen as covenantal. The Pharaoh is one who tries to abrogate the covenant or prevent it from, from, from being fulfilled. And in any event, this, uh, this event of leaving Egypt for the Haggadah is what finalizes and quenches the covenant. And in this covenant, we are, we are all living. We are living in this space of the covenant, in this relationship. That's the ultimate significance for the Haggadah, the main significance of these telling, remembering the story, and not just remembering the story, telling the story, 
In other words, he's seeing ourselves as part of the story. That's what's very important. That's just remembering the past. We see ourselves, it's an ongoing story. We see ourselves as part of the story. All right, have a very sweet Pesach, everybody. And, uh, all right. Next week, there's no class. No. All right, stop here then.